I want to take a minute before we get into this chapter of On the Brink to thank our amazing sponsors. They are making it possible for us to bring you programs on a continuing basis. And I'm happy to say we have a new sponsor to welcome today. It's the Donna Frank team of Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Blake Realtors. They have 18 years experience in this business. They know what they are doing. This team has consistently exceeded sales expectations. And what that means for you is if you're buying or selling or investing or whatever else you can do with real estate, you want to contact them. The team is led by a friend of mine, Donna Federico. Uh, she's amazing. And you can find out more about her and what she can do for you by going to Donna Fed, that's D-O-N-A-F-E-D at gmail.com. And while I'm thanking folks, not just our sponsors, but our listeners deserve a big hand. And my appreciation there, you are coming to us in increasing numbers, I'm happy to say. Um, but I need you to do more than just listen. Whatever your platform calls for, sharing, rating, ranking, subscribing, uh, really could use that. Uh, those of you listening on Apple, please give us a five-star review. In fact, if um, if you're allowed to do this, if your religion allows it, vote twice and give us 10 stars and all that. It'd be great. And the reason for that is the more we are uh, listed and liked, the more sponsors I get. And that means more money comes in. I might actually get to pay panelists, something the local NPR station doesn't want to do, but I do. So please, I can't do it without your support and your continued listening and uh clicking of buttons as required by your platforms. Thank you. Welcome back. I uh, thank you for joining us again for a new chapter of an Armeo on the Brink. We are talking about a topic that's not very much talked about lately, and that is Ukraine. Remember that war? And to do so, to, to, to bring up this topic, uh, I have two amazing speakers. One is Brian Bonner. Brian is in Kyiv right now. He's a senior editor for Geopolitical Intelligence Services. And from 2008 to 2021, he was the chief editor of the Kyiv Post. He knows a little bit about this country and about what's going on there. We'll be talking to him shortly. I also want to introduce my second guest, who's an old boss, a longtime friend, a fabulous journalist. That's Drew Sullivan. He is the founder, one of the founders, and still the publisher of the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. So he too knows about uh, Ukraine. You were writing about, your group was writing about Ukraine and corruption and security issues long before Americans tuned into it with the war that began about two years ago. So welcome. Brian, can you can we start off with you telling us a little bit about what it's like living in Ukraine and Kyiv two years almost into this war? Well, it was uh, rough. For the uh, first month, uh, I was out of the country for the first month. I came back at, at the one-month period after Ukraine had won the Battle of Kiev. But it, it took another year before Ukraine got really good air defenses. And now in the capital, to be honest, we are living in a little bit of a quite a bubble because the air defenses are so good. 
they're intercepting uh, Russia's missiles and drones uh, at a very high rate. Um, but uh, so the economy is 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 uh, OK. It's rolling. Uh, you know, there's obviously problems. But we, I say bubble because that could be bursting very soon if military aid does not arrive very soon. And uh, if economic aid does not arrive very soon. So uh, it's very precarious. The mood right now is very uh, anxious, uh, fearful even, and uh, a lot of uncertainty as we head into the uh, holiday season and the new year. Uh, Brian, you spoke a little bit about the difficulty of travel. Uh, As an American, you sometimes want to get back to this country. It's a bit of a trek now. Yes, I've been out of the the country for uh, five times this year, and and each one is an ordeal because we haven't had commercial air service, obviously, since the start of the war uh, almost two years ago. So it's it's an overnight uh, train ride wherever you want to go, and the trains don't move quickly, but they move reliably. That's one of the things that Ukraine's uh, during the war, you know, you need the uh, army and you need the railway, and, and we have both. Uh, so, uh, it's, it's been a little difficult, uh, uh, and exhausting. So, um, but, but it's doable. It just, it just takes time and takes a lot of energy out of you. And Drew Sullivan, your organized crime and corruption reporting project has not stopped reporting from Ukraine over the past couple of years, but you've had to make some adjustments and some arrangements to do it right. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, the the centers that we work with in Ukraine and our, our partners and our, our editors there are investigative reporters. And um, in a war situation, investigative reporting is extremely difficult to do. Um, you know, the, the government of Ukraine shut down access to a large number of public records um, in order to prevent Russia from using them to undermine Ukraine. Um and so there's there's less access to information. People are are security conscious, um, and so consequently they're not talking as much. It's you know wartime footing uh, for the government, and so you know they, the information tends to be closely guarded and carefully curated uh, before it goes out. And so um, you know, and and our our expertise is follow the money corruption. And, um, you know, uh, most most of the traditional ways of of dealing with things and tenders have all changed up during the war for, again, security reasons and for political reasons. And so consequently, it, it is very difficult to do the traditional work that we do, although we are doing some of it and continue to do some of it on a regular basis. Uh, it's just more difficult. The other thing is there's a more legitimate need, you know, news you can use in war is you know, what, what's happening and, and what the situation is and um, what the problems are. And so um, uh, uh, there's also a need to document what's been going on in Ukraine. I mean, I, I don't think even though all the stories that have gone out, people do not realize how incredibly vicious this war has been and uh, how few, uh, you know, laws of the Geneva Convention and other things have been followed, if any. And so consequently, they've spent a lot of time documenting war crimes and atrocities that have been happening in in areas around the country, especially early on. But even uh, to a certain degree now, there's a number of, you know, 
you know, basically murders um, that take place uh, amongst not only the civilian population, but in the military population uh, by Russia um, and, cons- and the, the Russian army. And consequently, um, you know, a lot of this really truly has to be documented. And so a lot of time has been spent. And then, you know, a, a third problem has been that, um, you know, our partners have have had, you know, uh, it's best reporters pulled into the military where often they serve in intelligence and other branches um, where their skills are particularly good and so useful for, for the military. And so um, we're, we're dealing with a lot less experienced reporters. So we're spending more time training people and getting young yeah. reporters up to speed. That That's really interesting. You're listening to Drew Sullivan, who uh, has a team of reporters working in Ukraine, and to Brian Bonner, who is working and living in Kiev. Um, I, I want, I'd like to hear from both of you about just what are the consequences of the American media, especially, ignoring Ukraine? And they have done that since October 7th, when Hamas launched an attack in Israel. Is this going to be like Afghanistan, where we had a 20-year war and you never read about it in the newspaper or heard it on the radio? Ryan? Well, that's certainly the big fear. It was stunning. It was almost like uh, overnight, every international correspondent uh, got on the same bus and got out of Ukraine and ended up in Gaza. I mean, we see... You know, the same correspondents who were here one day and uh, now reporting from Gaza the next. Now, that's obvious uh, because, you know, uh, that they, they follow the, you know, the big latest story. And to be honest, Ukraine was the war was becoming a grind. There is it is hard to come up with great new angles that people want to to uh, to uh, consume, either, you know, read or, or listen to or, or view. So uh, this is a huge problem. And Ukraine feels it uh, being off the news. Still a lot of great coverage going on here for people who want to do that. But, you know, more than anything, everybody is really, really watching uh, what's going on in Congress. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, and before I came on, I mean, I checked with uh, some of my friends uh who are you know uh, at the at the war front now and you know basically got confirmation that they are all exhausted worried nervous feeling like they're alone uh salaries are being delayed the war bonus that they get they're supposed to get a big daily bonus for for being on the front lines it amounts to all you know about 2700 a month uh not being paid, low on people, low on uh, ammunition, low on weapons, don't know what's going to happen next. So, I mean, that's that's the situation I got today from a friend at one of the hottest spots in Avdivka. And you can read uh, lots of stories uh, about that saying the same thing. So um, we're in a very big, big, big situation. I hope Drew is the optimist in this conversation because... Uh, you know, coming off a counteroffensive that was didn't bring the results that Ukraine wanted and its supporters wanted. And now for Ukraine's future really to be caught up into American domestic politics, it's uh, it, it's going to be very unnerving uh, weeks. Uh, I, I think people hope that uh, come January, uh, 
that the 60 billion that's earmarked for Ukraine will, will come through. But uh, even that's not going to demonstrably change things. It, it'll it'll keep Ukraine in the fight for another year combined with uh, if if Europe gets its 50 billion through, if, if Hungary doesn't oppose that. So uh, that's the situation. It's it's uh, it's grim. So, Daryl, are you any more optimistic? Uh, and you uh, you are also a longtime observer and critic of American media. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, it, it really the, the, what what the media is doing is is not surprising, as Brian points out. I mean, it's 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 go to the hot story of the day, what people um, care about. And, you know, the, the problem in Ukraine is, is it's now in the grind part of the war. Um, and, uh, you know, front lines are not changing much. And, you um, you know, the death and the destruction is still high, but, you know, it's being played out in, you know, beyond people's vision. But I mean, I think the problem here is that, you know, you can't look at the Ukraine war and the Gaza war as separate and, you know, uh, unconnected items. This is a global, you know, political landscape where there's a lot of things at, at play. And, you know, um, you know, Hamas met with Putin, you know, uh, before the attack and immediately after the attack. Um, you know, there's no doubt that it, it's in Russia's interest that an attack took place um, to to spread the, um, you know, the amount of resources out to a larger number of people and to distract people. It also puts more geopolitical chips on the uh, on the table. There's been, you know, what, five or seven coups in Africa, you know, recently all, you know, orchestrated by Russia. Um, and and so consequently, you know, it's very possible that Putin is trying to put as many political chips on the table that he can trade and what he wants to trade for is Ukraine. He doesn't care about any of the other places and, and he really wants to trade for Ukraine. And, you know, we've we've heard from from sources that you know, there were attempts to start wars in, in the Republic of Serbska and Bosnia. There was an attempt to war to start a war in in um, in, uh, in Kosovo. Um, and, you know, so, so you have to look at this larger, uh, you know, uh, political landscape and, and what Russia is doing and manipulating around the world. And that really American media has been completely ignorant of and has not looked at it. And, and I'm not saying necessarily that's all happening and that's what's being orchestrated, but there's a lot of evidence that that could in fact be the case and it needs to be looked at uh, much more closer. I, I have long talked about this, Drew, that, there, that these wars and other trouble that you didn't even mention, I want to get into it, like tr uh, trouble in West Africa that suddenly stirred up, Kosovo you mentioned, uh, right. even Taipei, it's all connected. And we're going to get into that more in just a, a few minutes. And our Mayo on the Brink is brought to you by Orchard Air LLC. And this is exciting. From January through April, it's offering reduced pricing for short-term rentals of its beautiful Karen's Place retreats in the woods of Burlington. I've been there. It's gorgeous. Karen's can accommodate up to 12 people and they take individual bookings too. And parts of all the proceeds always, they get to the Alzheimer's Association. For more information, go to Facebook. Facebook.com slash Karen's Place VT, capital VT. And Karen's, let me tell you, is K A R I N S. P 
Peacock Pots is a founding sponsor of On The Brink. Be sure to go to their website. It's peacockpotsoneword.com if you're looking for kind of unique holiday presents. I love their, they have these stoneware mugs, bowls, plates. I'm gonna spend my entire salary this week there, I'm sure. talking with uh, Drew Sullivan at the moment. He's the founder, a founder and a publisher still at the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Center. And we're talking about how the Ukraine war fading into the dust as we in America are all concerned about uh, Gaza. They're actually connected. I'm struck by the the Jewish question, which is spread across both wars. Zelensky is Jewish. There's a huge population of uh, Jewish people in Ukraine. And yet Putin says he's trying to stop Nazis. And on the other end of the world, in Gaza, we have uh, Israelis being accused of uh, Nazi-like tactics, uh, genocide in Gaza. That's very twisted to me. Um, is there is that part of the bigger picture that you see at play here, Drew, that uh, Putin has learned to take advantage of um, anti-Semitism? A- absolutely. He's he, he's both anti-Semitic and uh and willing to, to use anti-Semitism as a as a tool in his propaganda. And, you know, R- Russia is, you know, a serial liar. They'll they'll really say, you know, um, whatever it is necessary to to, you know, um boost their propaganda and the way they see the world. And most countries to a certain extent have that same uh, you know, um willingness to to stretch the truth. But 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 Russia is you know, engaged in flat out propaganda all the time. It's a propaganda run, you know, um, a country. Uh, and um, it's it really is, you know, they will use any tool at their disposal at any time. And, you know, I, I suspect a significant amount of propaganda is aimed at Republican circles to basically loosen the support in Republican circles for Ukraine and and to kind of make these demands that, you know that the border wall in in border Mexico is more important than these larger geopolitical issues, and and um, that we should be worried about abortion rather than the war in Ukraine, and and these kind of red herrings that are always um, put out, and and it's all all designed to promote a particular um, you know set of goals that that you know is in, in in the interest of Russia, and of course their main goal in the United States is. You know, supporting a, a, a Republican president and undermining the war in Ukraine uh, as best they can, and so you will see classic Russian propaganda in Republican, um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, social media circles, you know, constantly. I mean, Elon Musk has created a whole channel now X, which is essentially pushing, you know, Russian propaganda at a rate that that you know I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, this is this is a, a, the new war. I mean, this is information war is as important as on the field war. The field and, war. and there's a reality in Russia that that's true. American media is really still pretty blind to how all this works. They really see the world from a very American perspective. And that American perspective is missing all these other battlefields that are out there. I am talking in this chapter of On the Brink with two longtime reporters and residents, or at least visitors to Ukraine. This is the war that America seems to be forgetting. 
Uh, Brian Bonner, longtime editor at the Kiev Post, uh, are you seeing the same sort of um, short-sightedness that Drew talked about in the American press, in the world press, and in the local press? I, I can't imagine that they're blind to the machinations of Putin. Oh, no, it's uh, in the local press, it's it's all war every every day, every minute on all outlets. Uh, and, you know, there's there's wartime censorship. So the down and, and this unified broadcast system. So unfortunately, in Ukraine, we live again in our own bubble, which is victory is around the corner. You know, we're going to win. We highlight all Russia's problems, but you have to really step out. And when you do step out, you see that Russia is on a wartime footing. The sanctions are 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 weak. They're not working. Russia had record oil and gas revenue. Uh, I think Bloomberg reported uh, this year. Uh, Putin has put the economy on a wartime footing. At least 115 billion in defense spending next year. At least easily 10 times more than Ukraine. And the problem is there's no negotiation uh, that Ukrainians can see because uh, the, the object is not just territory or keeping out of NATO. Th those were all sort of just, you know, more excuses. The, the object is to destroy Ukraine as a nation. And, and I don't think it'll happen. But, you know, for now, people are voicing, wow, if worse comes to worse, uh, we could have a government in exile, a, a disbanded army that has no no money and no weapons and uh, millions more refugees fleeing. Now, if that sounds too far fetched, keep in mind in neighboring Belarus, there's a, there's a government in exile. And already we have lost uh, Ukraine has lost six point three million people uh, who many of them are not coming back because they've been gone for two years and, and uh, they found new lives elsewhere. So. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the attention is still 24-7 by the locals, uh, but you can't escape the fact that pe people f see, you know, if you go back and, and it, so many histories will be written, obviously Russia is to blame first and foremost. Ukraine has its share of blame because it wasted, squandered a lot of its 30 years of independence on corruption and and self-dealing and uh and a lot of the corruption was fueled by russia and they didn't build the defense that that they that they needed there are warning signs all over history in in ukraine that this was going to happen and and it indeed it did and then you can go forward and the biden administration i mean you know america does not have a great track record of standing by allies so i don't think anybody really believes as long as it takes because it's not in the politicians hands and the Biden administration never articulated or never put forward, and neither did Europe for that matter, which Europe is kind of defenseless by itself, uh, a strategy for victory. Even Jake Sullivan recently was saying the strategy is to put Ukraine in a strong position for negotiations. That's not a victory strategy. And so sense. all these politicians who say as much as it takes, as long as it takes, I mean, nobody is is listening because it's obviously not true, uh, and and politically, it's it's going to be uh, you know a really tough mm -hmm. lift. Uh, I, I think they'll get it over the the finish line one more for one more year, but after that, oh my God, you know, just take a look at the domestic politics in in Europe and and in America, and 
you tell me where you see that there's going to be stronger support for Ukraine in the Ukraine. Drew, Drew, you're hearing you're hearing Brian say that Putin's ultimate goal is the destruction of Ukraine. Does it stop there or do you see something more sinister, more global? Well, I mean, Russia is always the policy with Russia has always been that there are three countries that is that is owned by them, which, you know, is Belarus, Moldova and Ukraine. Um, and, and they've been pretty consistent in that policy for many, many years. They have always considered, Putin has always considered Ukraine as part of Russia. Um, and, uh, and and so, you know, that's, that's not surprising. Um, whether that goes beyond, I mean, you know, P- Putin is a, is a corrupt autocrat who, who basically has built a kleptocracy. Those are inherently unstable governments. Um, and they need war and conflict to keep their people on board. And consequently, you've seen Putin not only attack Ukraine, but he's attacked Moldova. He, you know, you know, he's pulled apart parts of Ossetia and and um, you know uh, Georgia and other places um, to be part of his you know area. And so you know he needs to do that to to control things and to put pressure on other people. And so consequently, you know you you you. I don't think there's an inherent desire to take over the world, um, but but there's clearly an idea that he needs to, um, you know, reform his um, what he considers Russia um, and to keep those out of the hands of the West. Um, but then after that, you know, regardless of what his intentions are, it will be a large, unstable nuclear power. Um, and and that's that's dangerous and that's problematic. And you know the sad thing is there's a unique opportunity here to really permanently undermine Russia um, by supporting Ukraine. It's in the interest of everybody um, in the world to to kind of um, put Russia in its place. And and we're really failing to do that. Um, you know because uh, uh, too many of our people are buying into the Russian propaganda. Well, I want to make a a point on this, put a point on this. Uh, Ukraine seems to me always has to be more of an immediate threat to U.S. national security and to global security than than the situation in the Middle East. I'm not saying pick a war here, but uh, to ignore one and put all the emphasis on the other seems very um, short sighted. Yeah, I mean, if if you if you look, you know, the the Palestinian issue has basically been fairly segregated. You know, the Palestinians have very little support from other Arab countries. Um, they're increasingly separating themselves. You know, this is a huge problem for Israel. Um, and it, it's never going to be solved until there are, you know, um, leaders on both sides, you know, who who want an agreement. I mean, it took Ireland 800 years to get there. You know, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a long time. There hasn't been the last leader and either side to support actually solving this was Rabin and he was murdered for it, you know? Right. So, so they really, you know, there's a long way to go. Um, but it's, it's a contained problem in, in some ways, you know, you do have Hamas, you do have Hezbollah, but you know, Hezbollah didn't, didn't join this. Um, so, so it's somewhat of a contained problem. You know, Russia is not a contained problem. It, you know, they're, they, um, work with, you know, places like Turkey and Iran and China, 
Um, they're undermining democracy around the world. They're undermining, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, systems, you know, banking systems and other things. They're major money launderers. They're, you know, um, they're very tied, closely tied to Dubai. Um, you know, bad people work through them without any problems. They support their organized crime networks. Um, you know, it's part of state policy to have organized crime. And so it really is a global bad actor that is known for starting wars. Right. Um, and so this is really the far more, more bigger problem. Um, uh, it doesn't have the um, the visceral, um, you know, uh, emotions of the Palestinian um, Israeli conflict, uh, but it is far, far more important. It's really interesting uh, to switch a topic here. Brian, in the past week, the Department of Justice charged four Russian soldiers with uh, torturing an American. They the first time in 30 years since we had a war crime statute that it was actually used statute, not statue. Uh, is there anything to this? Does it, does it make any bit of difference at all that uh, the Department of Justice wants to hold, at least wants to hold Russia accountable? Well, I think it's a start. I mean, there are enough war crimes happening here to keep prosecutors and and courts going for decades. Uh, I don't know that we're ever going to see the justice, but it is a good start to have 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 at least uh, you know this acknowledgement of that. Um, there's a lot of things that you know uh, that still have yet to happen. Uh, uh, on war crimes, and I don't know how they'll they'll ever be resolved. I mean, there's thousands of cases now, and who's going to hear them, and what mm -hmm. what the chances of catching anybody? And then there's the whole financial thing with all the frozen Russian assets, which which would seem to be many people have argued that you know because Western taxpayers are getting tired of funding Ukraine, even though it's a very very tiny part of, of American and European budgets that that this should have happened a long time ago, that the law should have been changed to to basically say that if a if a country invades another country illegally like Russia did, that that their assets can be seized uh, and 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 used to help arm the, the victim and to help the victim rebuild and to help the victim's economy. That still hasn't happened and we're two years into the war. So uh, um, all these judicial, legal remedies, as you can see, are very slow and patchwork. Very slow and patchwork, as, as this whole war has been. I have tons more questions, and I'm going to get to them in just a minute here. We're speaking to uh, Drew Sullivan, who's the publisher of the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Center, and to Brian Bonner, who is a longtime editor and still works in Kiev. Music for our On the Brim podcast was composed by Dave Bekeckley, and his works are available through Pine Valley Press. It's a Williamstown, Massachusetts music publishing firm. On the Brink is also proud to be sponsored by, I also have to say, I love being fed by them as well, the Apple Barn and Country Bake Shop. That's in Burlington, Vermont. They specialize in delivering the real local Vermont. For like a half a century now, locals and tourists, all of them, have found their way to the barn. I'm sure it's by following the scent of those pies and donuts, which are irresistible. That's the Apple Barn 
Uh, their website's easy to find. It's just all one word, theapplebarn.com. I encourage you to go there and go to the real place. Why did the much ballyhooed Ukrainian offensive counteroffensive fail in the past year? What do you think, Ryan Bonner? Well, I read a lot of generals and uh, watch a lot of uh, news, and uh, basically, you know, the original sin is, uh, is that uh, after Ukraine went on a massive offensive. Taking retaking Kiev, Kharkiv, Kherson, uh, these big three areas in the you know the capital, the east and the in the south, that uh, there was a a lull and and you, and Russia had a year to dig in, mine the place, build up fortifications, and they did. All the while, Ukraine was not moving on the offensive and didn't have the weaponry. It says, and then there's a huge. You know, to summarize all the investigations, there's a huge mismatch between what the West, how the West wants Ukraine to fight and how Ukraine thinks it needs to fight. And one of the biggest things is that they were going to, the West wanted Ukraine to do combined arms operations without air superiority, without fighter jets. Uh, you know, a lot of the weapons, which no, as I understand it, no Western military would even think of doing that and you know it's been well documented that ukraine's you know major counteroffensive went nowhere uh you know and and they they suffered heavy losses and then sort of and abandoned it and, and shifted to a much slower strategy because they were not able to uh have all the elements that they needed to to move forward now getting getting ukraine to a position of military superiority now is 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 very difficult and in fact they've you know they switched from offense to defense you know several weeks ago and uh you know that means that that's the best the best things are the best case scenario right now appears to be that the lines remain frozen while the weather is frozen and that neither side makes makes big advances so that's my understanding i think that's pretty much the consensus on mm -hmm. the uh on on why the the counteroffensive did not work Rue, i want you to jump in here from your perspective what has to happen in the west or in the united states to help ukraine defeat russia well, I mean, you know, we, we've got to unblock the assistance. I mean, re regardless of, of you know, whether Ukraine has the ability now to defeat Russia, we have to unblock the assistance just to keep the situation from going backwards. Um, and so, you know, I think, um, you know, it would have been in our interest. That there was always a fear from the beginning that the, the, the West would give enough arms for Ukraine to defend itself, but not to really free itself. And, and that's really kind of what has happened. Um, and, you know, um, it, it puts us in a situation where you have really an unstable thing because it's not like Putin is ever going to give up on this. 
You know, he's never going to give up on Ukraine. Um, he will do, you know, he ran Ukraine up to 2014 through Yanukovych and, and corrupt politicians. Um, and and essentially it was it was a vassal state. But, you know, um, since that time, he's not he wants it back. He wants the resources. You know, he wants the pride. Um, and so consequently, if you get stuck in a situation where you have Ukraine partially in the hands of Russia, there will never be an incentive for him to to leave and he will just look for another opportunity and he will plan and he will put his whole economy and military towards, you know, an eventual restarting of these same, um, you know, hostilities, you know, with a much better plan um, and, and more resources. And so consequently, you really wanted to get him completely out so that he would have to cross borders again to do that. And that's very, very unfortunate. Um, the best thing to do now is to really um, restock Ukraine as much as possible. The high-tech weaponry has really been a serious problem for Russia. Um, you know, they haven't learned anything on, on the ground fighting. They continue to expend huge amounts of, um, of personnel um, at a frightening pace, um, and they seem willing to continue doing that. And so... You know, consequently, um, you know, the, the, there has to be the, there has to be a political breakthrough really in the West um, to, to, to get, you know, the arms to get the um, the air superiority. If they get long range weapons, which they do seem to now have some of the long range weapons, um, maybe most of them, um, you know, at least not in large numbers, but in small enough numbers, there's at least a precedent set. They get the F F-16 fighter jets. Um, they could theoretically um, slowly pull territory away from Russia on this, um, but but you know there's there's always the, the the threat that Russia will bring in large numbers of troops in other parts of the country and continue to make this difficult. Ukraine can fight a limited war right now, but it's just literally running out of people. Yeah. I mean, it, it just doesn't have enough soldiers. The number of experienced soldiers, which was really a, a, a huge distinguishing factor in the war. You know, they had, they had smart, good soldiers who were trained. Those those guys are dying off at a at a you know an unfortunate rate. And and um you know the um a lot of people have fled the country and uh you know uh, are not going to come back because of the probability they would have to serve in the military and large numbers of people are hiding in the country. So there isn't you know, the there's a diminishing return on the on the soldiery that you you need to fight this war, and so consequently, it's gonna I think pretty much be defensive the rest of the way out with limited attacks, strategic attacks to 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 just basically you know to deplete Russia of any ability to build up a strong um, attack formation. Putin just announced uh, this past week that he was running for another term, which may be the answer to this question I'm posing now is, have we lost hope that dissenting voices in Russia will change his mind, will say enough of the death and the war, we don't want it? Have we lost hope for that? Uh, Drew there, first. There are no dissenting voices in yeah, Russia. Yeah, you're, I mean, you know about, tell us about your Russian reporters, your your partners there. Yeah, our, our, well, all of our reporters have left. We're, we're, you know, we've been named a, um, you know, an undesirable organization. It's five years in prison meant if you um, even deal with us in Russia. So, um, you know, we're, we're, 
in a situation where we have to do things in other ways to to report on Russia. But you know, uh, you know, Putin's done some very smart things. I mean, he's he's paying large um, uh, sums of money uh, for the death of these people who are dying in huge numbers. Um, something Russia has a lot of uh, money, um, and uh, and so in these rural areas, um, you know, if you lose a son, you can buy a house. Uh, and if you go into, you know, um, these these small towns, it it's it it they have money that they've never had in their history. Um, you know, they have resources that they've never had in their history, and they've paid it with their young men's lives. Um, but in the end, they're financially better off, and um, and so consequently, um, there there's no um, the the people who would really have fought this have left. And and wow. so you've you've basically got you know the the sheeple left you know who are going to uh, you know um, who who it's more important to them to have a strong leader um, and to have this image of Russia than to actually have a functioning you know Russia um, and so we can expect that that basically no one uh, in the country is going to protest Putin you know at any at any level it's going to make any difference the, the the question will always be whether internally um you know whether the you know uh Siloviki will do something you know that's kind of the leaders of the intelligence and and you know um other communities whether they do something on it but you know the history in russia has never has always been that these leaders live out their long lives and then die and then you know they're hated for 20 years and then they're recovered after 20 years and made a hero exactly. again. So. Exactly. Brian on the front lines in Kiev, there must be uh, depression or despair that anything will change within Russia. I, I want to ask you about that. And, and also has all talk of corruption within Ukraine stopped? Is that just unpatriotic to bring up now? Uh, people don't expect anything uh a political change from Russia, even with or without Putin. And Putin is feeling very, very good right now. I think that the feeling in Ukraine is that it's uh, uh, the hatred, the imperialism, the idea that Ukraine is 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 their country runs pretty deep in Russia uh, right now. And as far as corruption, there's a feeling, I mean, as Drew said, it's very difficult to, to, to write about it. There are still journalists who are. A lot of my team at the Kiev Independent, now partners with Drew and OCCRP, are are doing the same. Many others are trying to. And corruption scandals, we've had huge. I mean, during this war, we've lost, uh, you know, a defense minister, a National Bank of the Ukraine governor, uh, security service head, general prosecutor, uh, on and on and on. And most if not all of these departures have this taint and whiff of corruption. Now, people who know Ukraine know uh, the nuances of Ukraine very well, know that it is, you know, a highly corrupt country and there's a huge amount of um, money coming in here that is not accountable. This is like a recipe for trouble. I mean, you know, that's the downside of Ukraine. The upside of Ukraine, of course, is it's, it's a democracy that's fought autocracy for a long time, as Drew, as Drew said, they broke away, basically from from Russia in 2014. Uh, you know, the clean break. Uh, so there are these positive elements going on, but still, you know, all those institutional things uh, to 
to stop corruption uh, and to, to prevent it and to punish it are still not existent in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine has going for it a strong civil society funded often by Western partners, and it has, uh, you know, a robust uh, independent media, which is, I mean, not enough right. cash, not enough reporters. So that's going on. Um, but basically, the feeling is, I mean, it, it shifted from like, we're not going to criticize. Now there's a lot of political infighting. And there has to be, you know, with Zelensky, he has to show especially to the Republicans in Congress and, and the other skeptics about aid, that this is, this money is going to be well spent. And so uh, a lot of times, unfortunately, in Ukraine, you get demonstrative like arrests and charges, and then they just fall off the, you know, the radar down the road. Uh, but uh, it's going on. I mean, I know people feel at a gut level that, I mean, uh, that, you know, corruption now is during times of war is the worst, worst, you know, sin you can commit against your country. And they don't they would not have any pity on, on those who that's that's actually a good point. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I we have we are down to time for one last question. And I'm torn between which of these to ask you. So I'm going to break the rules of journalism and put a double edged question out here. You can answer both or either. And it is, are you disappointed that Zelensky did not get to be named Time Sexiest Man of the Year? That honor went to Taylor Swift's football boyfriend. <laughs> And uh, what would you say to Republicans who are now completely blocking aid, it would seem, for Ukraine? So start with Drew first. Yeah, I'm, I'm the first part of the question I, I will ignore because I'm really not suited <laughs> to, to make that assessment. Um, but but I will say that, um, you know, uh, to, to Republicans, I mean, you know, um, this is really counterproductive to the interest of the United States. Um, what they're doing, um, and and th really, they have to look at why they're doing it, and and the reasons for for why they're doing it. It it just doesn't make sense. I mean, maybe it's just the stupidity of this populist movement of you know saying let's hold off for our you know let let's hold out for our pet peeves and and um, you know everything's about the border wall. Um, but but everybody knows that that's not true. Um, everybody knows that that really what's going on here is. Um, you know, interests are at play jockeying for things that are important right now. Um, they know that Ukraine is important to the Biden administration. And so there's a political component of it. But there's very clearly a Russian propaganda point to this. And they, they really have to look at, you know, what's in the interest of the American public. And, you know, everybody has tried to tell them all sorts of things. So I'm not going to try to tell them anything that, that, that they should know. Um, but, you know, this 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 will affect things for the next two decades. And, and a mistake here uh, can be a really serious long term problem that will rear its head and cost the lives of a lot more young men before this is over if they make bad decisions. Uh, OK. And Brian, how about your answer to my double edged question? Well, Zelensky's star power has faded. He knows it. The world knows it. People are, he was a novelty and uh, in the first year, and now he's he has a hard time getting an audience, yeah, so much, much less covers. So this is really bad situation. I think with Biden, uh, 
I mean, he put himself into a box. He needs to actually do whatever the Republicans say on the border, anything, get it done. Wow. Because if he, if he does not get the aid to Ukraine and Ukraine unravels quickly, oh my gosh, there's no chance for re-election at all, especially coming on the heels of Afghanistan fiasco. I sense the Democrats don't understand the importance of that issue to voters and they had better or else he could lose it all. So I would, I, I would, if I were him, I would wrap it into, I mean, forget the bargaining. I mean, I mean, just, okay, take the Republican blueprint and say, can we get the Ukraine, Ukraine aid if we agree to the border concessions and do it? Because as Drew said, if, if Ukraine unravels, you know, uh, the costs and the consequences are just enormous. I mean, just, I mean, just enormous. And, you know, nobody knows that, you know, probably better in this part of the world than Poland, which is actually the only country that is really, really, really trying to have a first rate. They they may end up with the most powerful military in Europe for a reason, because Poles just don't want to, they don't want to be, have Russia on their border or even close to their border. And, they don't want the entire, you know, more millions of Ukrainians to relocate west. So that's where we are. So I hope in this episode of uh, On the Brink that we have helped to remind Americans how important the issue is, the war is in Ukraine, and to stop ignoring it. We end our podcast with a toast, and I want to make one today to the journalists working in or at least around Ukraine and Russia to get out the real word of of what's going on. They are risking their lives. They have everything at stake. Um, I send money. I have for months now since the war began to the Kiev Independent. I encourage you to do the same. I Write to me. I'll tell you how to do it. Um, They need it. We need it. So thank you to my incredibly deep sourced and knowledgeable uh, guests this week, Brian Bonner and Drew Sullivan. You were just terrific. Thank you for a great conversation. Thank you.